0: Okay, welcome back. I'm Bob Jennings, and you are listening to Hogcast. I'm here with Brigadier General Steve Nasty Nester, the wing commander, and a few other people who just came back from a trip to Peru, showing the Air Force just how effective a reserve-led deployment can be. But before we introduce those folks, it is... Nasty, Nasty time. And I tell you what, sir, what a... Great UTA weekend we just had.
1: Yeah, uh, it, yeah it was awesome. The, the weather wasn't cooperating too well, but we managed to have a good time.
0: could have been better, but I, I think we persevered and it was, it was a great weekend nonetheless. Family Day was incredible, uh, number one, so definitely thank you to the Booster Club for putting that
1: on. It was, yeah. Uh, a lot of people to thank for Family Day. The 442nd Booster Club, who, who some of you see cooking every UTA to raise money. I think they raised somewhere to the tune of fifteen to twenty thousand dollars, and that, that money went to the food vendors that were out there, the rides for kids that were out there, the Johnson County Fairgrounds, place that we had it at. Outstanding event. Mandy Speaker, Stuarts from the command post, several people from the command post that helped pitch in. All the, the shirts. The Rising Six raised some money out there with their their jail. The dunk tank that shirts did was, was cold, but it was it was fun chiefs added some stuff to it, some commanders. There's a lot of people pitching in to help our families and our airmen have a, have a great time. We even had the chaplain's brother from down by Joplin, Missouri, I think Web City. Web City. The guys from uh, the Elks Club, I think they brought 30 people up They cooked brats for us. They manned the beer tent, drove two hours just to help our airmen have a good day. The folks from Independence, the VFW hall in Independence that donate a bunch of bikes to us and, and clothing for our Christmas store, they rode down in there. Harley Davidson clothing, and, and they, they celebrated with us as well. The folks from MVETS over at Knob uh, that we have some retirement ceremonies at. I think that uh, Melanie uh, and her husband, I forget his first name, Johnson, Hank, Hank Johnson, yeah. they, they donated $3,000 from MVETS for that event. Again, just to, uh, we're going to thank them down the road as well, but awesome family day. From the family days of the past, uh, what that's transformed into for me personally to see it come to that kind of level with the kids having a good time. I think it's, it, it's gotten better and better every year.
0: Yeah, I was just talking to the major this morning and uh, we were saying that for the last three or four years, every year it's been better than the last and uh, no pressure. Next year, Booster Club,
1: but uh, we expect big things. Bob, you started that family day off with the National Anthem. That's some of the best pipes I've heard in a long time.
0: You know what? You guys can't see this because it's an audio format, but I am blushing.
1: Uh, <laughs> Bob got to sing the National Anthem. He stepped up as the MC. Did you did you actually write the words down or did you have them memorized?
0: I actually have heard it once or twice before, so I, I did do it from memory, and I always feel like if I were ever to sing the National Anthem a lot, that I would want to have the words written down because, you know, you get up there, there are hundreds of people, and it's it makes you nervous. Yeah. You know? And I've seen people flub it before, and I always felt terrible for them, so I always thought, you know, you should write the words down, have something to look at so you can keep your place. But, you know, I was not expecting to sing the National Anthem when I showed up yesterday, but I guess the lead singer of Twisted Fate, who killed it again every year. She's good. I guess she wasn't feeling quite up to it yesterday, so they needed somebody to step in, and the band didn't all know it in the same key, and I didn't know it in any key. I just happened to remember the words, <laughs> so it was a full-on acapella experience. That, that was fun, and you know, tens of people clapped. <laughs>
1: Oh, uh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Hey, also, I'll just recap kind of what happened this weekend uh, since we're doing this post-UTA. The Chiefs had a great social Friday night at the club, thanks to those guys. And we're, we're going to continue to do that, maybe quarterly, maybe have one at the m place to, to give them a little business. They need another bartender over at the Oak club though. Uh, the line's too long to get a beer. So that one bartender for 60 people doesn't cut it. Hey, congrats to you. The Master Sergeant Strat list came out yesterday and you were a uh, top 25%. Thank you. In Thank the, the wings. So to all you mm-hmm. folks that made it, I won't mention all of them by name, congrats. That's a big achievement. I think there's about 100 Master Sergeants in the in the, in the 442nd and we recognize the top 25%. And uh, I think the number one Master Sergeant great at was uh, Gonzo Gonzalez from Security Forces, who's now an XP. So that's good stuff. Uh, so congrats to those guys. Uh, Rick Mitchell McGraw had his Fenny flight. I, I was got to partake in that myself, I flew in it. I have not seen a crowd of that size at anybody's Fenny flight, which tells you to the, the type of people person and the type of person leader that, that McGraw has been, not only as a three or third commander, but also in, when he worked in XP, he got to know guys like Gonzo and Bo Lander and the folks that he worked with in the wing. He naturally just connects with people outside of the fighter squadron and, and does a great job. We're gonna miss him. Which leads me to the guy sitting next to me, uh, Colonel Beelight Lighter, who's coming back. Uh, McGraw's going out to do the same job as, as Beelight did in PACAF. And uh, Beelight got here in 1996 as a, as a crew chief. And he's been in this unit and left two years ago when he made 06 to go out to Hawaii. And now they're kind of swapping. When you make 06, they want you to kind of get out of your wing and go do a staff job. And then a lot of times you get to come back to, or to another flying job. So B-Light, tell us what you did over in PACF and then a little bit of history of your history here in the 442nd.
2: Yeah, I joined uh, the 442nd in 1996 uh, as an A-10 crew chief. My wife was on active duty here. So once we got married, we settled here in Missouri, joined the reserves and went to basic training tech school, came back, I did want to fly. I had flown right out of high school and gotten my commercial and instrument. So joined the reserves crew chief, doing the UTAs, but also going back to school at uh, UCM to get my uh, aviation degree. All the while telling all the pilots, hey, I wanna be one of you and uh, fly as well. So uh, once I finished my uh, four year degree, I went uh, up for a board and was luckily selected to uh, go to pilot training, come back and fly the Mighty Hog, which I did from uh, 2001 till 2021, where I went out to uh, the PACOM War working for the Air Operations Center. At the Air Operations Center, we basically command and control all the aviation element within Indo-PACOM, which basically covers about 110 million square miles. So it's a very vast area of responsibility. So luckily, I was able to do well out there and through the help of General Nestor and Colonel Leonis, I was asked to come back here to the 442nd, which I definitely consider home. And I'm just so blessed and happy to be coming back.
1: Awesome! I know I, I worked. At, we overlapped at Pacaf a little bit. I remember Light's first couple of days at Pacaf, and there was Russian chips all around Hawaii and some uh, bombers and fighters that we were intercepting around Hawaii. I had no concept of what goes on in PACAF before I started working there as far as the daily competition between uh, China and Russia and ourselves. And I see Light after his first day at the AOC and, and there was it was an interesting day of uh, intercepts with Raptors and some Russian airplanes. And, and I'm like, uh, welcome to PACAF, it's busy, huh? And he was like, Holy cow, that was really interesting work. I couldn't believe all the stuff that was going on today, right?
2: Definitely opened my eyes to all that we have to do to protect American citizens around the world.
1: Awesome. That, Be Like Being a Crew Chief, leads me to to another thing that happened this weekend was the dedicated crew chief ceremony, which the second time we've done that, and, and it's basically the... A little bit of back and forth, the pilots are honoring their dedicated crew chief, and the crew chief gives them a coin, the pilot gives them a hatchet. A B-Light was a previous crew chief, as was a guy like Scott Sims, Aaron Barry, Juicy, is another pilot. We wanted to maybe do a podcast with some pilots that have gone from the flight line to the cockpit, and maybe some current crew chiefs, like Hunter Southern, that's trying to become a pilot in the Air Force Reserves, and we're helping him out find that path to the cockpit as well. And some other guys that we're working with, they go fly the Sim, work with Bump. Bumpus, our sim instructor, and and for those of you out there that are interested in it, I, I welcome to come over to the 303, get you in a sim, figure out how to how that process works to get cross trained into that. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of people showing interest. I had some CE guys that helped me remodel or redo our office space. They did. We put him on mandates for two weeks and Josh Schaefer, I think was his name. He's got 120 flying hours, works for Amazon, very interested in becoming a pilot in the reserves, didn't know how to do that. He's in my office, we just started talking. And I'm like, man, you need to go over to the 303rd, fly the sim, meet these young pilots, ask them how they did it. So he got to fly the sim yesterday and, and he's he's really excited to try to further his his career. Let's see what else went on. We also had a lot of suicide and and sapper training this weekend, so thanks to Jess Swanson for heading that up with a bunch of different groups and some group settings, and that stuff went well. And the the one in the fighter wing staff, we had some good conversations and good stuff about taking care of people in, in, in that room. So I'd like to see that. Change command is going to be November 4th for Colonel Leonis and myself at 1100 on Saturday, the UTA. General Sabrick's going to come up and and oversee that and visit our wing. It's our chance to show our wing off to her, the new 10th Air Force commander. And uh, I'm going to actually try to do a podcast with her. So this isn't my Fenny podcast, but I want to do a podcast with her, kind of brag a little bit about the wing to her. And I want to hear her vision for the future of the 442nd as our NAF commander and what she and, and Chief Bluto are doing to further our, our fighter mission past the A-10 in four or five years. So that'll be that'll be fun, the next UTA. And we also had a weapons load competition that was cool. There was like the old guys against the active duty guys against the, the TRs, right, and arts. Rio's got some stuff on that.
3: Yeah, hey, I'm also uh, real glad to have uh, be like come back uh, Colonel Leiter. Uh, he was my deputy ops group commander when I was the ops group commander. So yeah, so we had a, uh, a bomb build and a bomb load competition uh, out on the flight line. Three teams. When it comes to the bomb build, the geriatric team won. I, I guess they didn't deduct for Advil use. But the de- uh, people on the team, it was uh, four members. It was Chief Calhoun, Senior Master Sergeant Hamilton, Senior Master Sergeant Caldwell, and Senior Master Sergeant Select Griffin. So that's awesome that the geriatric team uh, won the build. But quite honestly, our wing won the build because the, uh, the winners built it in nine plus 30. And, and the third-place team built it in 1115. So those are all quick builds of six Mark 82 bombs by our builders. So that's awesome. And then when it came to the loading, uh, TFI team won, which makes me happy. Consisted of an art and two active-duty Lobos. And let me see if I can read their names. Tech Sergeant McGee, Staff Sergeant Keys, and Staff Sergeant White. And I'm also waiting for Chevy to hopefully pass me who the dedicated crew chief of the year was but he hasn't gotten back to me on the phone yet, but they gave, gave those award that award out at the dedicated crew chief ceremony, as well as the quarterly award, as well as the monthly award. So, you know, the crew chiefs, one of the things I noticed at Patriot Fury is crew chiefs obviously have a, a huge role when it comes to taking care of the mission, you know, they're the final QC, they called it, before the jet leaves with the pilot to conduct that part of the mission. But, you know, they're having to make pretty big decisions when it comes to if this jet goes or if it doesn't. And I, I see a lot of the crew chief corps turn into leaders in the Air Force. And when we were Patriot Fury, you know, we, we, we saw a lot of crew chiefs or former crew chiefs in leadership roles throughout the command, not just 10th Air Force. And, you know, that's kind of a, a example that you put out with the uh, the three pilots that came off the line and are in our fighter squadron now. I think that's a kind of a universal trend, and you know, crew chiefs are leaders and and step up and become leaders in the command. So that's kind of awesome that we did, uh, had that ceremony. And uh, you know, I told my crew chief, hey, not only is it you're important for the mission, but you're important for my family. You know, I fly this airplane more often day to day than in combat, and my wife and my kids appreciate what you guys do. So I think that's a real, real important thing to
1: emphasize when we're talking about our crew chiefs. Very good, very cool. I think that wraps up the nasty time. We'll get into some Patriot Fury stuff and before we kind of get into that, I'm sitting here with Lieutenant Colonel Yursak yeah, Brandon Jewell was recognized as yep. the DCC of the year. His yeah, uh, who, awesome. father was a crew chief here, too. That's it's really cool. Brandon's a great kid and a, a really good crew chief. So I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Yursak, who, man, we, we just did his change of command last UTA. He's the new MSG commander, and what a career. 35 years, right, 35, Keith? Uh, it says it this month. 36. So Keith started out as an enlisted guy. I talked about it as change of command. 17 years enlisted, I believe now 18 as an officer. All the way up to colonel. So from an airman to a colonel. So for those of you out there listening, you can go from airman to chief, like Chief Urbano is joining us, and, and or you can go from airman to colonel. Like we like to develop leaders in this organization. These are two guys that we certainly developed. And chief Urbano was in security forces as the chief over there, and he got selected to be the senior enlisted leader for the MSG uh, to work for Colonel. Your second oak, Sal. You had it. You had a couple. That questions. You were a little leery of taking your hat off is what I heard. Your security forces. Are you still going to be able to wear that as the MSG SEL? Uh,
4: you, you can, sir. And uh, I, I don't plan on wearing it to show that I'm a, a chief for all the squadrons, not just security forces.
1: Awesome. Well, tell me a little bit before we start on Patriot Fury, tell me a little bit about your background before you got to the 442nd. what you've done here in security forces and, some, and then we'll talk about stuff you did over in Europe. I saw you in Spain, you were doing great work, and then and we'll get into Patriot Fury a little bit later.
4: Of course, I was active duty, only person in my family ever to join the military. Joined in 2000, was active duty for about 10 and a half years, deployed about 10 times in that time frame, transitioned over to the 932nd at Scott Air Force Base. Did reserve, I was a reservist out there from 2010, deployed a couple times with them there, and I was security forces my entire time. Deployed everywhere, Afghanistan, Iraq, Saudi, Kuwait, UAE, Africa. Loved them all. I got the opportunity to become the security forces manager with the 442nd Security Forces in September 2019. So I was in that position for four years before getting afforded another great opportunity in the 442nd MSG as the senior enlisted leader. I've never sought out opportunities. I live 10 minutes from Scott Air Force Base, but I have no plans on returning, Not, nothing against the base, but the family and the camaraderie that I've developed here has, it makes me want to come to Whiteman Air Force Base every single month. Awesome. So I think it's a great, a great wing, an amazing wing, and, it's a, and I'm learning a lot from all levels, from airmen to you, sir, the general. So it's a great base.
1: And what what's your I know you have a high up like you're a GS twenty-eight or something like that. <laughs> what's your what's your GS job? What do you do on the civilian side?
4: So on the civilian side, I'm our deputy director for the Central Region for Defense Counterintelligence Security Agency. I've been doing that for a little bit. My office actually sits in Dallas, but I was able to work out an arrangement where I can still live in St. Louis and then they travel me down there one week a month to deal with deal with all that. So we deal with all the clear defense contractors throughout the United States. My AOR that I cover is about 22 states, so it's a pretty big AOR. keeps me pretty busy, a lot of multitasking, a lot of meetings, but I I thoroughly enjoy
1: it. And and that I noticed when when I was in Spain with you, and Rio talked a little bit about Peru. Your expertise in that area is invaluable to when we go places that you can scout out and, and look for security issues to our airmen and help us with those things, both in Spain and down in Peru, correct?
4: Correct, sir. Yeah. Just lots of, lots of training
1: with it. Deployments also helped with that as well. Good, good. All right, back to Keith before we get on Patriot Fury. So Keith, 17 years prior enlisted, he, his nickname when he was the exec for 10 years was Ninja. Need it now? Just ask. He's like a Swiss Army knife. He can do anything. He's been an FSS. He's been an exec, LRS. Now he's MSG commander. He just gets stuff done. Like I, I talked about his trip, he went to Panama for six months on his AEF and he ran a huge logistics chain down there for the army. And like I said, if if I'm a a one-star that's a CFAC or a a lead wing commander in charge of a a hub spoke system in Guam or in Europe or in CENTCOM and I had to pick a a logistics four guy to go with me to get stuff done, I'd bring Keith Yersak along with me. So tell me a little bit about what, what you did here before we start, Keith.
5: I'm not even sure where to start on that so my background again was the fss 17 years there and i pretty much worked every office within the fss and then which again proving myself on the personnel side ops group uh, offered me a job as their executive officer which got me a commission and moved me on and then from there again 10 years no seven years with ops as their uh, ops executive officer time proving myself uh, wound up 10 years as the uh, wing exec and then graduated into the LRS as the commander. And uh, again, that's, that's probably one of the most satisfying jobs I've ever had as far as being logistics and being part of the mission. And uh, it, it just, I can't even explain that feeling, uh, how much, how involved that was and what I learned again. And then also being in charge of people. That was probably the first time that I was really in charge of people. Uh, from there, uh, I, I did a four year stint roughly there. And again, was asked to uh, backfill in the IG shop, uh, which is another important role just making sure that people are compliant and doing the things that they need to do and again building more relationships internally within the wing. And that also led to this next role that I'm currently in, which is the MSG commander. And again, just very humbling being in charge of five different organizations, being in charge of the, the being, or working along with the talent that is in, already in place there and their expertise. You know, it just, it's a surreal feeling. And again, I'm looking forward to this next three years. We got some changes coming down the line, you know, as far as what our mission roles are gonna be, you know, looking forward to guiding us through that path. And, and most importantly, after being uh, gone on deployments and doing some things, uh, I'm looking forward to developing Airmen. And uh, it's back to what Beelight was saying as far as uh, seeing the mission. After traveling the world and seeing the things that are going on there, and the closer I get to uh, the end game, it's I, I'm feeling more passionate about passing it on. And, and I want the people to have the same passion that I have as I'm leaving and it's i i I, anyway i got three more years to take advantage of that and i'm looking forward
1: to it good all right so you can see why rio chose these two people to be his his guys down in peru so let's rewind two years ago Rio, i take over the wing rio and i are i go down to 10th air force mlr and general rather one of the first things he says to me is your wing is going to be the lead wing for South America. Yeah,
3: he actually said it to the pilot meeting <laughs> yeah, after your change of command. That's right. All the pilots were like, what, what are you talking about? We're going to Europe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I out. had already been in cahoots with General Surro, who was I was vice for before General Schultz. He was working in Europe, and I had contacted him. There's stuff going on in Europe with Ukraine and Russia. And I, and I said, hey, we want to go train over in Europe during my two-year command. I want... I want to get on an exercise over there and do some stuff like we did in Estonia or wherever he he finds this Defender Europe thing for us and and when Radliff said that I'm like oh no I don't want to lose Europe for this right Rio
3: yeah I mean he, he you were able to convince him and, and you know obviously with, coordinated with coordinate with the Luke wing commander yeah and, and we're able to at least shift the aviation package
1: so in another interesting conversation in my office rio was sitting there i'm on a video teleconference with general Radliffe, and i said i was pitching him the idea that we could do both we're still going to go to europe sir the the dm guys are going to provide jets and we'll still lead this uh, patriot fury thing and he goes well we're gonna need no six to lead it and, he, and i go yeah we'll find one and he goes how about uh, rio rio was sitting right there and rio was like i'll do it and i don't think he knew exactly what he was getting into and and to be fair originally the original projo was do sims it was and i think that might have caused him to retire i
3: i, I think <laughs> i think it was maybe a one of the straws on the back but you know we were planning this well prior I mean, i know keith was involved immediately and uh, your first site survey was? In
5: uh, March, sir.
1: Uh, in March, and yeah, then the
3: initial planning conference was in April. April.
1: In March of what year?
5: Uh, 22. So, bottom line is, as soon as I came back from, uh, it was actually Honduras, uh, from working with the JTF Bravo down there, uh, I, I had like a two month reset. And because I pretty much was the South Con resident expert here, had a passport, it was like I had to, I, I, I won the passport lottery. So, <laughs> I was the lead of uh, of the initial site survey that went down to Ecuador, because we were going to Ecuador in the beginning. And uh, I led 12 people, active duty uh, and reserve, uh, you know, people down there and different subject matter experts for their areas to do the initial site survey and then we brought everything back for the IPC.
1: Is that, so did Deuce go on that with you?
5: Deuce did not. I was it. Okay. He, he led the second one. He By then everybody kind of knew the vector and was able to start getting their paperwork in and we knew the, the direction we were going. So we started figuring out the passport and visa process which continued to be a hurdle through the whole the whole deal actually So the
1: tasking just for you guys why are we going why do we go to South America? Why do we why do we do what I, we do? I think that was
3: you know the, the whole concept of you getting all three naps together or we'll say hey this was a napkin discussion that he had with the other NAF commanders when he was the 10th Air Force commander.
1: Tell me what you're saying when you say three NAFs. Okay,
3: obviously we're in 10th Air Force, so that's the 10th NAF. And then in general, the C-130 Reserve Forces are in 22nd Air Force, and then the strategic airlift, which is tankers and C-17s and C-5s are in 4th Air Force. So the four, or sorry, the three NAF commanders, General Borgan being the 10th Air Force one, and the two others, we're you know, probably at an MLR and you know, probably in a bar and came up with this great idea, which, quite honestly, it was a good idea, to combine our reserve air power into one wing and deploy.
1: To an air expeditionary wing.
3: Pretty, yeah. Well, I don't think they knew it, it was that, but they wanted to do a project together. Uh, General Radliff, I would say, catalyzed it down into South America because he, he was in MA. Out at 12th Air Force at Tucson, yeah. Yep, and he knew the AO, and he knew the region, and he knew an exercise called Resolute Sentinel did this. So that pairing and his his knowledge of that AO kind of glued it together. So
1: and the reason, you know, the reason we go to places like that is one to help other countries out too, maybe to project a little power, and three is to deny other countries that might be down there trying to sell military hardware, trying to build ports, trying to put the and space antennas, different things. So the Chinese are very heavily involved down South America and Africa, all over the world. And allies and, and relationships are very important to the United States. And that was a big reason why we went down there is to build relationships with these countries and build some allies and partners in another region that we usually don't go to, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. The you know, Peruvians fly uh, Soviet fighters and, and such, and they all have uh, Soviet level Weapon systems purchased when they were the Soviet Union. They have a lot of Chinese restaurants. They have camera systems in their cities that were provided free by China. And Ecuador has missile systems. And I'm trying to think they probably had Russian fighters or Soviet fighters that, that weren't running, pushed off the side. Uh, so absolutely, the, one of the objectives was to partner with these countries and, uh, you know, let them understand. And, and we, we talked to not the ambassador, but it was the consulate, a leader at Dallas, and you know she was very adamant that hey, you know we have more in common with you. You know there's no ocean that separates the United States and Peru, and you know culturally there's a, more similarities. So she was adamant about this partnership making a lot of sense. It, it quite honestly
1: did. So Keith, you do the first planning conference down there, the site survey, uh, and I'll get to Deuce and and having to buy a $600 suit down there to meet <laughs> meet some people uh, on the second one. What were your biggest concerns? Did, did Chief Romano go down there on the first one with you? No, sir. What were your biggest concerns? Originally, we were supposed to go to Ecuador and Peru. You come back from the, uh, that site survey. What were your biggest concerns as a, as a log planner?
5: It was Initially, it was the fact that uh, we need to be smart about planning this because uh, w- any force that we were gonna bring down there, these bases were not built for modern aircraft. So I was very adamant that we need to proceed with caution because we were going to overwhelm not only the uh, base's resources but the economy uh, at each of the locations that we were at. And I think that's kind of a good reason why we did the kind of the hub-and-spoke concept to kind of spread our forces out so we would be able to evenly distribute and have a sustainment uh, while we were down there.
1: So you're talking hotels, you're talking food, you're talking security, you're talking the the things they had on the bases we we're looking to go into, correct?
5: Yeah, the fuel. The fuel was also the big one, and then they're just the, the facilities, the air bases. They were not built for modern aircraft. Period. It was. You know, you just had to tread lightly on what you were going to do and how you're going to do it, which is probably why it made the A-10 the perfect fit to go down there, you know, the way it was set up and and, and, and high off the ground, you know, a lot of FOD, a lot of, a lot of stuff, a lot of basic needs that were going to be needed while we were down there.
1: Tell me what, what, for the listener out there that didn't know what FOD is, what's FOD?
5: Just so the jets set higher with their engines up higher, so the rocks and debris and stuff, a lot of it, the jungle is overgrown around the airfield, you know, and it could have sucked through the engine and damaged an aircraft.
1: Awesome. And so besides A10s, what other aircraft were you guys t- took down there? Yeah,
3: so we we took four different aircraft down there. We took four A10s. We took three C130s. We took two KC-135 tankers and we took one C17. So it's kind of like, you know, I'll call it a mini wing. You remember how we t- used to have composite wings? Yep. It's kind of kind of similar to that, but it, it was actually on a smaller scale. And and it was actually, you know, in execution quite effective. I would have liked one more C17. I think that would have made it a more, you know, sustainable situation. But you know, it was absolutely a, a very mobile, effective package. And if we had two more A tens, we could have sustained longer as well. To in, in reality, project combat power away from main operating bases, and we
4: were pretty pretty effective at doing that.
1: And when did you get involved, Sal? So I went on the
4: second site survey in end of July, beginning of August. So that's when we went down to. Ecuador, Peru, well, Panama, Ecuador, Peru. So that's where we were originally gonna be. We were gonna stage part of Panama, be in Ecuador and parts of Peru.
1: And from a security standpoint, we ended up dropping Ecuador, but what were your concerns from a security standpoint for 550 American forces to go to these two countries?
4: So you had a couple, so you had the infrastructure. One, it was small, lots of gaps, and their security measures for fences and lighting and stuff for the airfield is not like ours camera systems weren't there, their security forces, minimal amount of ammunition that they can carry, training and stuff like that. Also you have the heavily populated area Ecuador with cartel, so that was always my number one concern with that was the presence of a whole bunch of Americans coming in thinking that they're gonna go on the fight against drugs, which was not the case. We were just there for a partnership training exercise. So to me those were the biggest ones and obviously the uh, driving conditions for uh, the way they drive and the way we drive is a is a completely different
1: because we're not we're not staying the facilities weren't there to stay on base correct we stayed we stayed in hotels well uh, eventually
3: initially we were got the main base was uh, manta and you know like he talked about security measures all the light bulbs were burned out on the overhead lights the back or the west fence wasn't it was basically a bank that went into the ocean and logistically, the, there were hotels in the city, but they were very far away. And uh, as one of the DEA agents uh, talked about the best one, he said, yeah, the, the, the drug cartels like this hotel, too. So just, just some huge force protection issues that were kind of difficult. So we were going to stay in dorms. And the dorms were, and this is kind of a trend with some of the countries down there, they, they get, get things and they don't really maintain them like we do. So the dorms were moldy, you know, the beds were not in really good shape. And eventually we were going to, well, not eventually, but the plan was to throw money at the dorms to basically strip all the stuff that had mold in it. Well, luckily we didn't end up going here. Cause I don't think we would have gotten over this hurdle, you know, fix the air conditioner, fix the plumbing and, and stay on cots. Cots supplied from your old, old base Grissom, but <laughs> uh, we're going to have two people per room on cots. And I would have passed away down there if we were living on cots. But yeah, it was it was difficult. We're, and additionally we were going to go to Quito, which if you look, you know, do some Google searches on Quito, there's there's places that are state department no-go zones in in the town of Guayaquil. I'm sorry, Guayaquil. Yes. Guayaquil, a huge drug port. It was just we were going to get escorted by Marines to the hotel there. So it's just, you know, th- these are just the, the the highlights of some of the force protection issues and some of the bed down issues. You know, we I don't know how we were getting gas there, but it was just it was just a, a huge planning factor. And the planning, I would say, you know, you're talking about the first couple of sites, sir. I would say in the beginning, it wasn't as furious, frantic, but as we identified more and more and more logistical problems, it just kind of apexed uh, when we were
1: planning for Ecuador. So did the, we just said we didn't end up going to Ecuador, but... The president of Ecuador got assassinated either before or right after our trip down there. Is that correct?
4: It was before. It was it was before we left. Okay. And that's when the movement from one to the other happened. Um, I th- I'm pretty sure he got impeached first. Yeah. And then that's when the movement, once the loss of control, that is when they decided to move us from Ecuador to Peru. It's Peru only.
3: Yeah. It was the ambassador at Ecuador. I think it was before the actual impeachment, and then obviously there's been some assassination since for, what do you call it, election candidates and stuff like that. But it was a pretty pretty interesting shot in the face when they said, you're not coming to Ecuador anymore.
1: Okay, so let's fast forward. Now we're done with our, our, you go down there a second time with Sal and and, and Deuce. Deuce is the Lieutenant Colonel and they want him to meet some Ecuadorian or Peruvian leadership, correct?
5: Yes, it's Ecuadorian at the time. Again, we're still projected to go to Ecuador, and he had to provide a speech and a PowerPoint presentation as far as what Patriot Fury was about. We were still trying to sell sell it at the time. Why would why do they want us there? So he, he was in charge of selling it. Uh, he was him. actually the backup. Yeah, he was. Yeah,
3: exactly the, uh, the primary was a 12th Air Force active duty King. guy who spoke. Spanish? Yes, sir. And this presentation was going to be in Spanish. Oh, jeez. And uh, it was to the U.S. ambassador and Probably Secretary of State, of the same
5: level on the Ecuadorian yeah. side, whatever that would be. I can't remember. If this yeah.
1: Just so he, and he couldn't do it in his flight suit, so he had to go out and buy a suit.
5: Yeah. Well, his bags got lost. Oh. he, he had to Air. buy all new stuff. Uh, so his, his bag—I'm not sure exactly how his bags got lost, but they did, and he had to—he had to, to scramble.
1: Did he put that on his DTS voucher? I,
5: I believe he did. He <laughs> did. Yeah, uh, but American Airlines
3: uh, didn't uh, didn't deliver his bags, so he, he had his travel clothes and that's it. Uh, went out and bought—I uh, think eight hundred or seven hundred. dollars Suit yeah. and uh, had to brief this Spanish-centric PowerPoint presentation to, to high dignitaries, yes. <laughs> um, and, he, and he, he did great.
5: He nailed it. And every every other so we we had a dedicated aircraft. So a C-130 brethren traveling, you know, by ground because uh, it was a little painful uh, to, to travel by ground there. But we had a dedicated C-130, and we would stop at each one of these, do our site surveys, and meet the leadership. And do he nailed it. He was he was. I couldn't have been more proud to be with him, but he he did a great job.
1: Good. So you get done with the second trip, we we kind of start planning. Tell me, you guys. I know you guys were on these VTCs like three four times a week. Tell me about the pace and the the amount of planning weekly planning that went into this trip from, uh, you're working with 12th Air Force in Arizona, you're working with the FGC at uh, Air Force Reserve Command, you're working with the 4th and 22nd Air Force staff, you have a staff you're building. Tell me about how often you met and how many VTCs you think you did weekly or monthly.
3: Like, like I mentioned, it started off, I would say, at a reasonable pace, and then it just kind of accelerated as we got closer. And, and it seemed like each conference we'd go to, we'd identify, you know, another half dozen critical problems i would say initially we're talking every two weeks what i'd like to say about the team is you know obviously we had a huge participation with the 442nd fighter wing obviously keith ended up being basically the a1 and the a4 chief urbano was the command chief sergeant cortez was the first sergeant down there but zero Waring from moody was our a3 and he was absolutely critical to that our jag tom schmidt was our chief of staff of the walk Obviously, Bob went and was running PA out of Chiclayo.
1: I forgot you um, went too, Bob. Our security. It was a great time.
3: Yeah, you did great. Our security forces was majority from Whiteman, both at Lima, and I think we had DM
1: mostly at. There was at, a Hill Air Force Base crowd that went to. Where?
5: That was the Porters. Of we, we, did, yeah, we had Porter support. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we had
3: members from air force reserve command from i'm guessing 40 to 50 units when it when you came all out but but we i would say had the largest component when it came to leadership Am I missing anyone? No, uh, we had
5: roughly seventy people from this base supporting that that, that, that exercise. So yeah. it was it, we had a large footprint, but we did have to orchestrate a lot with the other three NAF agencies and their their supporting yeah. entities too. Oh,
3: and the team that came together from all these different uh, organizations, and, and specifically the three NAFs, typically from the staff, ended up being a, a perfect team. Is Indeed. the best way to describe it, you know. And I think it's because they were all bought in so many people were told to help plan and, and help make this happen and those people that weren't bought in would disappear you know they'd send one email to jump on one team's meeting and then you'd never hear from them even though they were being directed to help uh, but the team that came together w- w- were all bought in and, and absolutely i'll call it a perfect team uh, i don't i think there were some serious voids when it came to our expertises uh, specifically in the I, I don't know, the four. We, we kind of are always throwing darts at the four, not supporting us like we need to. The four would be uh, uh, maintenance, logistics.
1: Logistics, yeah. The
3: maintenance side of it. And that's where, you know, the Air Force is kind of not aligned with the joint uh, force structure. When you say four, what do we all think? I think maintenance, right? Yeah. Not anymore, to tell you the truth. I think a logistics. And, you know, when you say four to an Army guy, he doesn't think aircraft maintenance, or he thinks logistics. logistics. And we're, we're, you know, look at our fours on the NAF staff maintenance officer, yeah. maintenance officer, maintenance officer. So we're kind of, we're kind of not quite right. And, and, and we saw that, you know, we were thrown a four and it was a maintenance officer where I should have been thrown a high level LRO, which quite honestly are not the fours. You know, they're not, we're not promoting the force in the air force like, like we should, but we, we got a great team. And, you know, I think we really, since the bot you know, you talked about, you know, effective teams, we ended up being like a highly effective, cohesive team, good friends still to this day. You know, we were, we were texting professionally uh, and personally the, the entire year uh, because, of, because of the people that, that stepped up and, and wanted this to happen.
1: That's cool. The wing, you're talking 70 people from this wing. I'm thinking to myself, wow, we're planning this thing to leave in July. And Sal, you went on both trips, right? I did. All so so we also took 10 jets and 250 people to, to Greece and Spain in May, two months before this. So tell me from a reservist perspective, how do you, A, why did you volunteer for both trips? B, how did your civilian employer let you get that much military leave to go to Spain for three or four weeks and then to Peru for a month? And C, your wife must be very patient and tolerant to let you do all this stuff that you're doing, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So good support system, but it went from August, July. So that was my daughter's birthday. So we got to wish her happy birthday in Panama and in Ecuador, so that was kind of, that's how I sold it to her. So I went on that site survey, then we went to all the other planning conferences. I went on a site survey to Greece and Spain in November, then a planning conference in December, planning conference in January, uh, January. another one of uh, site survey. I was in Mexico for a personal trip, flew home or flew to Dallas from Mexico to, the, to meet with them all to go on a site survey, came home, and then got ready to go to Spain like a couple days later. But selfishly, the Spain one was, who wouldn't want to go to Spain, right? But it was just, it was one, awesome for the opportunities. The Spain one was great, because I got to sit and talk with all the maintenance folks, pilots folks, medical folks, ammo folks, all of those different types of disciplines that I've never really had the ability during UTA weekend. So I got to learn a lot about all of their jobs. And I thought that was probably the most fascinating part of it yeah I was in Spain that was awesome but just getting to know mainly the people in the 442nd so just me working with my deployer but I was able to multitask still answer emails on both fronts so a lot of a lot of late hours busy time dual tasking but it was opportunities I wouldn't pass up on I would do it all over again yeah Uh, maybe I'd shape some trips a little bit different but I'd I I would do it all. It was just a great opportunity.
1: This is what Chief Barron and I talk about when we bring people that are new seniors, senior master sergeants or chiefs sometimes, and we bring them in, we're like, what are you doing outside of security forces or ammo or LRS to broaden yourself, right? And what you just told me is how much you... And, and I think it's about relationships, right? And when I stepped out of the fighter squadron, I, I didn't even know we had LRSC. I mean, I did, but I didn't know the quality of people that work in those organizations. And I have relationships with those people like I should, probably should have, like we did with the dedicated crew chief thing yesterday. So you've built relationships. So, man, you're setting yourself up to be a command chief of a wing because of all the things that you've learned in the last year about how a wing runs, correct?
4: Correct. And, and, and it comes from leadership as well, right? So I had individuals put me in those situations. Colonel Leonis put me, selected me as his command chief. And I was pretty set on, I'm good just being the security forces lead. And he said, uh, you're my command chief. And I always learned it, even at an airman level, you don't argue with the colonel. You just say, yes, sir. And you and you move on, but that was an experience for me to get out of my comfort zone. And that's what I challenge everybody to do is get out of their comfort zones, because I learned a lot um, because wherever he was, I was. So I got to see things at the big picture, um, high level things I wasn't always afforded the opportunities to. So I got to see all the planning and stuff that he had to deal with and combined our Spanish was not good together. (laughs) So we put them together, it didn't make it any better. So- It's Urbano, uh, Italian? It is. Okay. So, you but need, I know more Spanish than Italian, which is bad.
1: You <laughs> need to go. I had West Peel when Chief Baron couldn't make it for a couple things. West, with the Secretary of the Air Force visit, tagged along with me. I got to go to the dinner. Got to go meet him. Learned a lot. Chief Dundas has gone with me to a couple 10th Air Force MLRs. Maybe you should you should do that with Rio if uh, if, if Chief Barron can't attend something. I think you'd be a perfect fit to go just to get a, a thing of, of how 10th Air Force is working. Yes, sir. Cool. Back to the trip, Rio. So and Keith. Done with the second one. This thing almost got canceled like three times. Tell me why it almost got canceled completely and then how you... I think it went because you three, four guys in the room here and would not let this thing be canceled.
3: Yeah, I agree with you on that. I had three opportunities to back out of this easily, maybe two easy ones. The, the first one was a money issue in January, right after, right before, it was like right at the beginning of the, the year, not fiscal year, calendar year, 12th Air Force basically, uh, there, there was one individual at 12th Air Force that kind of made this difficult and it just, it's complete negative leadership. And uh, the individual, you know, they, they wanted to maintain control over certain planning functions, but they didn't want to plan it for us. So it's bizarre how we had to deal with that you know, that complication. Anyways, one, you know, teams, we had, like you said, I had probably a dozen team meetings a week. And one of this team's meeting basically said, I don't have enough money for both the special operations side and the Patriot Fury side, because Resolute Sentinel is the overarching exercise. And there are two big components, Army Special Forces and AFRIC Patriot Fury. And he basically was, was toxically throwing out that I'm going to, I know I'm going to cut one, I'm going to save money, and I know which one I'm going to cut. And he didn't say it to everybody, but he basically said, one of us is going to get cut. And at that point, you know, we, we could have easily leaned into being cut and, and being not the, the person that went. But I, I started to backdoor it with the JTF commander, who's a B-1 nav, who is at, in Tucson, doesn't work on 12th Air Force but made sure that he understood that he, this, this guy, this GS at the planning at 12th Air Force, can't cut AFRIC's primary exercise, number one priority for AFRIC, just because he wants to. He needs to coordinate this, quite honestly, through his commander, which is a two-star, a NAF commander, and you need to be talking to General Radliff, who is the force provider, our, our NAF commander, our 10th Air Force commander, and he probably needs to bounce it off that, that general three-star, General Healy you can't just just do it gs employee and uh, kind of backdoored it and uh, the funny thing is we went from the the half not in favor to the only half they got cuz the special operations group basically realized that this was an unstable exercise because of this guy and they needed it for real world certifications cuz you know we do the certification exercise this was their certification exercise so they pulled out before they could have cut us. But I would have said that if I would have said, hey, we're out, we would have been out at that point, but it was quite the opposite. And we said, hey, you, you, no, you can't pull us here. This is a big deal and you, you can't just say no. And the second time we talk about, hey, plan in Ecuador, plan in Ecuador, but we were in Peru. End of March, Ecuador said, you're not coming. And it was like, we were well deep planned into our plan. You know, we had three months left and we could have easily said, we're done. I can't, I can't re-vector into Peru with this, this short amount of time. And General Radliff actually called me at home and, you know, I, I had, I heard rumors that this was happening. So I had about 24 hours of prep to think it through. We had one planning conference and then a site survey already like in a week and a half, ready to go. So, you know, we could have done, and it was like our final planning conference and our final site survey to Ecuador. And, you know, I, I figured we could make it a re-planning conference and a initial site survey into Peru. And we basically had a week, maybe and a half to figure that out. And, and you know, I told him, Hey, you know, sir, we got to try. And that was, that was my quote. He's like, you know, I could say we're done, but I, I told him, sir, sir, we got to try. These are happen to be conveniently aligned. Let's, let's give it a shot. And we, we went to Dallas, we reorganized what we were going to do. And then we tried to scramble to get our visas we actually had visas to peru because we were going to go on that site survey which had a small stop in peru but we revectored the entire site survey into peru and within 2 weeks re replant uh, it was it was a it was a, a tough turn that that's for sure Hi, G. Keith, your comments.
5: Yeah, that's when the games began because, it, it, you know, to, to travel into a foreign land, you know, you, it's not just a passport that you need, but it's also the visas. Uh, just things just fell into place. I mean, what were the odds of us having a Peruvian consulate in Dallas, you know, that was willing to help, uh, you know, and that that helped, uh, again, push our, our Visas through the process to get everybody down there and, and, and kind of pave the way for us. Uh, you know, uh, gas was another big, big deal uh, going into Peru. Uh, we had it all doped out going into Ecuador. As far as because the uh, A10 needs uh, certain types of gas uh, additives in the gas, so we had all that uh, figured out going into Ecuador. We had to shift gears and come up with uh, with the game plan for Peru, who was not able to support it on the economy. We had to figure out how to get additives down there. Fuelers, POL people that were smart in the game to uh, do the additives to the gas. Wound up having to find the a- assets, uh, make some sacrifices to some of the equipment that we had, you know, in play to come down and support us. Had to sacrifice those, so we find and get some r11s and all this was happening within um, a month four weeks you know when we're trying to make this happen to uh, be successful what's so, an r11 r11 is a uh, fuel truck for oh. uh, for aircraft
1: and then what you're talking jet a they had to add what additives they have to put in jet a so, so the a10 can they just can't take regular jet fuel for an a10
5: no it, you have to have icing inhibitor a static this just there yeah. Dissipator and then- Corrosion. Corrosion control. So those are the three things that need to be in A10 fuel. We did get a waiver. We were working a waiver simultaneously just in case that we weren't able to come through with the additives and how to get them down there. Uh, but again, the team came through, got it together. We got some, again, back to really smart people. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and
3: Keith jumped way, way ahead. I mean, we, when we went into Peru for our final site survey, luckily the infrastructure was better. And, you know, we we're going to stay on the economies and hotels uh, but we shifted to the enormous metroplex of Lima, 11 million people. Uh, and that Air Force Base was really nice. And then the, where we went, majority of the, you know, we basically had a mob, which was Lima International Air Force Base, the, air, the military annex there. And we had two fobs. One was Chiclayo, and and Captain Quinez Air Force Base. I think that's the name. And he and that, that's an old, old MiG base. Mig 29s there, and that infrastructure was reasonable, and the town was large, so we were able to hit hotels there, and they were they were fine. And then we had the base that we were going to use out of Ecuador, Tolara Air Base, which is a Su twenty five base, well up north, as our kind of our FARP uh, location, and where we uh, actually you know fought the war with the Su-25s, uh, which is a Soviet A-10 equivalent, basically, and KT-1s, which is a, a light attack aircraft made by Korea. So the infrastructure was a little bit better, but the fuel problem, you know, because initially, if you recall, 12th Air Force said, yeah, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll have the same fuel contract. It was the same, yeah, the same company as Ecuador. And it just degraded, degraded. And I was like, I don't trust this 12th Air Force gig. And, and it had degraded to the point that, you know, like a month out, they said, for, we don't have fuel for the A-10s. And then we talked about getting the additives shipped in and no one really took control of that. And they were all over the world because they had to source them from as far away as the East and Hawaii. They were trying to aggregate them and get them down there. And, and someone said, hey, let's send two fuel trucks down there. Uh, and then it got it got bizarrely complex. We thought we were going to be able to mix the uh, additives in one of their delivery trucks, but they, they wouldn't let us do that. So we'd use our delivery trucks, but they wouldn't let us pump gas into our trucks. It just every three days, we had a showstopper (laughs) curveball in the gas. (laughs)
2: gas.
3: And uh, no kidding, the gas plan was not solved until the day prior to the A-10s leaving Moody. I moved the A-10s to Moody without a final solution on the gas. And I went over uh, with the the A-10 squadron commander and we we actually saw that we were going to be able to get gas one time at the little regional airport at uh, there, but yeah, it's crazy. We ended up, our front primary fuel plan was to buy gas because we couldn't contract gas, apparently. That's again, one of the curve balls. Buy gas using the air card, which is a credit card for cross countries, basically, in a, from C-17 or C-130, take that airplane, fly it up from Lima to the Chicleo air base, uh, download it from that airplane into a fuel truck that we flew in, throw the additives in with no kidding a funnel we bought at a uh, hardware store there. At, at one point he was using a, 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 what do you call it? A gallon milk jug to put <laughs> the, the additives in, test the fuel and then deliver the fuel. And it was just, you know, that was our max was the, the, the gentleman that was the pro with the, the P.O.L., the, who was the other guy?
5: It was Max Miller and, and he, Thaddeus Jones, are, yeah. the are two local experts on that. And, and then and, there was
3: two from Moody, too. Yep, and just to the fact that those guys were there, and then I'll throw props out to Chief Matthews, who's a 10th Air Force uh, in the A-4. He happened to be on the Joint Task Force staff, and he was able to help us put the final puzzle pieces together. But every three days, there was an absolute showstopper. So I could have probably said no. And <laughs> here's a funny thing. The, the week, the Friday before we started moving the airplanes, that guy from 12th Air Force shoot me an email and he said, you should cancel. <laughs> and he did. And then I was like, are you kidding me? And it was just like to me and a couple other people. And I basically did a reply. I'll added a few things. I said, like, this is my line to cancel, which was basically the, the, the day prior to leaving from Georgia. And he said, he made a, 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 I'll call it a toxic comment, deleted all the other people just to me, basically said, you're a fool. Is best best
5: best
1: summary. Yeah.
5: I don't I'm think like, they ever thought we were going to get past the uh, passport visa hurdle to, to make this happen anyway. I, I, I really don't just back to kind of the, yeah. the the
1: support that we received from from that index. Yeah, that's what, a, what one of the things I always say I hate commanders that don't try to get the yes, they just say no, yeah. and then they're done. Yeah, This, uh, this guy uh, was not a commander. And there's a reason why. He hey, did. I'm going to pause this for a All second. Good. Good. And when I get back, we'll talk about when you left for Peru and dates and then when the Jets came down there and some of the stuff you did down there. Awesome. All right, we're back. So the trips to go. Give me the dates of the of the trip, when the A-10s, and when the whole exercise is supposed to be.
3: All right. It was a two-week exercise, and I think eight July. I'm, I'm pulling a calendar right
1: here. Eight July to twenty-five July. Something
3: yes. like that. It was kind of lesson learned. Don't schedule a exercise that we have to bring in a lot of a lot of
5: things that conflicts with
3: july 4th july 4th
1: that's that's what i was getting uh-huh. to so you guys left like the 26th or 8th of june correct
5: so correct. the crt team the uh, open the conting- airfield. yeah the contingency response team they, they showed up on the 26th and opened the airfield with a I i believe it's combat com so there's a small footprint that started on the 26th then we had the uh the leads so kind of a pre-advon a, we call it the torch team Uh, show up on the uh, 28th and that was uh, the leadership team and again best practice great call on that one because like he was saying we had stuff that was still open items that we had to work through particularly the fuel. If we hadn't been there in advance of everything going on and again the team that was in place and worked through those issues I'm not sure if we would have been ready when the when the uh, combat portion. Was that
1: all you went to (laughs) on, on the 28th? Yes. What issues did you have when you got down there before the jets were coming?
4: So the, the, the main issue we had that we had no clue about was we walked right into a Peru holiday week. Yeah. So as soon as we got there, they, their base was shut down. So we had like a, we lost a Thursday, Friday as soon as we were there. So trying to plan and look at the base, the Colonel, Colonel Sanchez allowed us, he put some folks out there so we can go out there, but it was limited footprint. So. Combat Com or Com was out there, so Combat Com, so they were able to get their stuff up. But we were working with a skeleton crew from the Peruvians, so we walked right into a holiday weekend, and then obviously the Fourth of July, which is only a weekend in the United States, so that was a holiday there. So that had no effect on it. We, like I said, we walked into theirs, so minimal Manning. To me, the biggest hurdle from the very beginning was a, a language barrier with their security lead and myself at the base. She didn't speak any English. What about I, Chico? Chico uh, was there, right? It was, but <laughs> when I had some pointed directed questions, I needed the direct response from them, just from the security thing. So some stuff got lost in translation. But we were able to make it work. A Fulberg colonel from Young Sound came down and he was born and raised in Panama and he spoke fluent Spanish and was just a huge asset to The team with that aspect, and so is Shirt Cortez, and there were several others that spoke Spanish that came down. Yes.
3: (laughs) Eventually,
5: yeah. I would like to piggyback on that real quick because, from the logistics and the sustainment part of it, too, the contracts that we were expecting to be in place. Weren't weren't there? None of them were in place. So as far as support vehicles, support uh, forklifts, yeah, uh, any MHE, any, anything support was not there. Uh, Porta potties, all that stuff. I mean, stuff that we needed to sustain a force. And that was I not think not that's in place.
1: that's uh, same thing I heard with the European trip. We had to rely on contractors for hotel yep. stuff. It'd be nice if we had our own contracting office in our wing to do that stuff for us when we do muscle movements 100%. like this. And,
3: yeah. a, and as a minimum, AFRIC needs to have contractors yes, that are sir. smart in HGO. They don't. Was, no, this was Twelfth Air Force's contracting office, and I mean, what did what did it end up doing? We had uh, security forces using the maintenance bobtail to to run patrols because the aircraft have to be protected or patrolled 24 hours a day. Dual purpose as the follow vehicle? Yep. We, we used a, a bobcat as the follow me vehicle, because when you had this, this airfield was dark and kind of beat up on the military side, and, and the Spanish controllers didn't speak very good English, so we had to bring in the airlift with a follow me vehicle, so we used a bobcat from Combat.com. You know, these are just the highlights of this innovation that we did at every turn. And that's what it was. Uh, I was so impressed with AFRIC and, and our airmen is, you know, you did, they didn't have to be told what to do when they're given a problem. They solved it by creative measures, uh, you know, we talked about the fuel and buying a funnel or using the milk jug. But yeah, just just things like that. We didn't really have 24 hour airfield ops. So we did multi capable airmen stuff where we marshaled the aircraft in. I think command chief Ashley really marshaled. He was supervised, of course. But just absolute incredible execution from our afric airmen and i'm just going to list some of the problems that we had to deal with you know security forces you know this was a region where we required 24-hour raven coverage uh, raven coverage is a special qualification to guard aircraft and you were able to get a waiver on that but they had to guard the aircraft 24 hours a day with u.s personnel so Correct. that was both at lima and at Chiclayo. we almost uh, diverted airplanes into that third base where we didn't have security forces and and you were getting in a car and about to go do a 24 uh, about a four-hour drive to go guard those aircraft if they diverted they ended up not diverting but the security forces puzzle and I don't even want you to tell me what you did with weapons and ammo uh, I, I guess you can didn't you uh, resource to the embassy
4: we did so at first when they got to um, Chiclayo uh, we had an ammo mishap where the flight commander, there was some paperwork. Aircraft, there, commander. Or aircraft commander, we were missing some paperwork, so we had no ammo. So, so there was
3: a, there was a, a, an aircraft commander who was supposed to pick up ammo at DM. It was military ammo from a military airfield, and refused to take it, and totally jacked his security forces ammo plan at Chiclayo
4: So at six o'clock in the morning, I was in the gym working out and I'd get a phone call, and they said we don't have ammo, and so. I had to contact Masaron Gonzalez, now senior Masaron Gonzalez, at the time who was at Lima, him and Masaron Bellas. I asked them to figure out a way to get me ammo from point A to point B, and I need it now. So they found, somehow figured out a way, they worked with uh, the embassy and the Marines out there to get ammo, they came provided to us in Ziploc bags, they got on i believe the flight was a 146 was that the flight yeah days? it
3: was the uh NSav bird the uh, special ops bird a transport bird that was down there helping us out
4: so they landed there and then during all of this while we were there early colonel leonis re- received an email and asked if we were um, armed up and carrying weapons because no one had any clue that we were arming with weapons at the time so we had to f- provide the guidance to to get clearance again to guard to have weapons while we were over in peru because the embassy was unaware that we were going to be guarding our Air Force assets with, with weapons. weapons. Yeah. So we were able to figure that all out within the short amount of time. But that was just the networks between Senior Massar and Gonzalez Master and Massar developed in their time because they got there a little bit early as well due to no space on flights. So we had a, I think they commercialed out to get there. So that was another yeah. Um, yeah. interesting part. So we had security forces. In Lima, so they were able to build networks while they were out there.
3: Yeah, we had a, like a, a big load of ammo that was supposed to come out of Scott Air Force Base, but we had a some type of mission change. I can't even remember the specifics because the infill was a near disaster. Is the best way you know, uh, diplomatic clearance issues that were not coordinated properly for the JTF. These were not Africa problems, one hundred percent. There were some 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 things that we maybe caused, but it was just a constant troubleshooting, and and they ended up on Delta carrying a small amount of ammo just to, you, you did hot, hot ammo swaps?
4: So we're, per regulations, you're allowed to carry about five, five or 11 pounds, don't quote me, on either one of those weights. So what they did is each member would carry that amount of ammo with them, and then we were able to hot swap weapons, and we still met all of AFI requirements and, and protection and full workloads and everything else. So we were just able to adapt and overcome, and just it was just the outside box thinking of, yep. of several individuals, Master Gonzalez, like Senior Master Gonzalez, Master Sergeant Bellis, Master Wooden, so all of those security folks is reaching back out to Senior Master Sergeant Williams, Senior Master Hiralik, just working with all of them to come up with this great plan, and it worked. Yep. So just You're probably not
3: making every decision run through you. Correct. Actually doing it on their own. So that that's why I totally appreciated that type of leadership. I'm going to talk about the security forces thing that you did. So, so there was, you know, <coughs> South America has a lot of we'll call it emotional political stuff, and and I think there there was a coup earlier in the year in Peru, and the there was the opposition party. Let's say it was had a planned march on the 19th of July in Lima, and it was going to be tens of thousands of people, probably 50,000 people there. Uh, they were uh, anticipating in Lima. We'd made security measures in Lima. It was nowhere near our route or our base or our lodging but it was uh, all mitigated in Lima. Uh, The evening of the 18th we get word that there's going to be a let's call it a mirror protest at Chiclayo, and it was going to start at the the sugarcane factory and walk right by the gate and we had zero notice and Chief Urbano I was highly impressed with your judgment decision making, basically came up with a mitigation plan that we're not, we're going to still go to work. So we did mission critical only to support the mission. Everybody else will stay in the hotel, travel in uh, civilian clothes and change because we were, felt safe enough to travel in uh, uniform uh, initially. And we were all going to be on the base by eight o'clock. Because yes. the, the, the 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 march would come by at eight thirty, and it was kind of blew up our travel plan, and, and it was I don't want to say it was inconvenience, but it was you know not in accordance with every other day prior. Boom! Sure enough, we executed that, and you actually ran out in front of the bus. Buses. Yeah, so we had
4: uh, myself and uh, Colonel Diabate did the recon. So we went out a little bit earlier, and then we came back. We head up a little bit earlier just to make sure the routes were cleared yep. in constant contact with uh, Colonel.
3: Uh, so get on base. Uh, in time, the protest did go by, and it was a peaceful protest. But I mean, you, you never know what what could happen. It's funny they actually walked up by our hotel as well, and there's video of people who were not mission critical uh, taking a, a shot of the protest. But you know, those are those are the types of decisions. You know, and I know you're, you're obviously an expert in those types of things. But you know, the command chief stepped up immediately and came up with an FPCon uh, plan immediately that was uh, awesome and we didn't miss a sortie and uh, you know everybody was safe uh, but that, that's one example of just innovation on the spot
5: and to to be clear i, I don't think the, the protest was not our presence it was yes. political so it was just we were just there at that time it's yeah. not against the, it. the,
3: the weird thing is that we there was no protest planned at Chiclayo until the evening prior that you know so so it was uh, just you know mm-hmm. stuff like that yeah they were, they, they were very receptive to our presence yes. to include, uh, I think, the average population. We didn't, you know, we stuck out uh, like a sore thumb in Chiclayo you know, regardless, we're Americans, you know, even even if you were Hispanic origin that you could tell you're Americans and they would look and, and look away. Uh, tourist town, not at all. It's a blue collar working town and they were not, Negative uh, to us at all.
1: I mean, no. Keith looks and sounds a little bit like a P- Peruvian. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> but yeah, that's that's just one example. And I just wanted to highlight that that Chief Urbano, you know, was highly involved in all the security forces stuff. Quite honestly, the majority of the decisions were made by your 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 troops of down course, the chain yes. and and such. Fire trucks. You know, you, you need to have certain levels of fire service when you have m- multiple movements, and it's an Air Force regulation. We don't realize it as pilots because when we show up. Even even at the first inn, the fire trucks already there. Yeah. You know, so we brought three fire trucks and we're shuttling them all over the country with with a C seventeen, bizarre. And those things are huge. I, I, I could not believe that you could put a, a fire truck, a huge ass forklift, all these pallets on and the C seventeen, C seventeen, packet full, and it's no problem. That's cool. Yeah. Security forces fire trucks the airlift puzzle <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Iradella, and, and quite honestly Colonel. Schumer, my DCOM, who's a C-130 guy, he's the vice at, at, at Peterson right now, just sorting that out daily. Just, just a massive, massive puzzle. And then the passports, that was probably the biggest pain because we need maroon passports to go to into South America because they're not NATO. And then they required us to have a visa. And, and just the, the logistics, Janet Zippo is the one. She's uh, down at 10th Air Force.
5: She orchestrated most of that, and it, it, again, each one of these steps is roughly, a, normally, a six to eight month process. Jeez. Somehow we got because you you think about it, it was not just our footprint, but it was a footprint plus one. So roughly eight hundred to nine hundred people, passports and visas. In case somebody fell out, you had to have a you, you know you had a had a plus one. Well, what if and, it
1: was like? Obviously, it wasn't. What if it was like? No kidding wartime situation, you know, six or eight months to get a passport.
5: That was a hot wash item. Uh, we definitely we went into these countries, maybe look at some of those countries down there, as long as you have a passport in an order under 180 days, they allow you entry. Then in Central America, for instance, Panama <coughs> and Honduras, maybe adopt that and, and talk about that at the beginning when we start these these uh, talks about, you know, utilizing these countries and building these relationships with them. Maybe they can help us, you know, help them and and, and explore those options going into it. But that's law. I mean, they would actually, I think, physically have to change their 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 law, you know, to to make that happen. So it'd have to start well in advance.
1: I think I might still be signed into ALUD for my <laughs> 2006 trip. I never really out processed there. Yeah, I think.
3: The, the the weird thing that the. the the militaries of these countries were so receptive, it gave the illusion that the government was receptive as well, and it wasn't. And the embassies working with the government and you got pushback pretty much all the time. And it wasn't negative pushback, it's just bureaucracy.
5: Yeah, they got laws to enforce
1: just like yeah. we do so. so so the the hogs get down there you're down there with some a-10s some 130s some helicopters tell me about the flying mission down there and how that went and then little hub and spoke action with COM. what halo and those guys did down there and a little ops maintenance perspective and what, what were yeah. some lessons so, learned so, uh
3: maintenance was supplied by at least the day 10 at chicleo by dm and you know i i went out a lot and and talked to them and you know they're closing their missions terminating so yeah. I talked about that a lot and you know I was very sympathetic and you know I, I basically said hey you know you know talk to Tyler Tyler Bain went down and you know he, he's he knows what's going on in maintenance and he can you know talk you through the details but I'll tell you what so I'll, I'll I saw I might be in charge in the future and I told them pretty I, I thought about it before I said that say, so like, hey I'll double bill it and bring any anyone up that I can up here from your unit. That's my promise to you. And you know, I was before I was an announced to be the, the wing commander, and but I told them that. So that was kind of interesting. It was it was because of the language barrier to include, you know, obviously the pilots they spoke English, but maybe not tactically. They had a planning day, an execution day, a planning debrief day, an execution day. So it was kind of a cycle. Very smart. We used the C-130 to shuttle. The, the planners and the debriefers up there. And it was, you know, DM, a guy named Ron Spetti, he, he had some
5: time in 12th Air Force, he had some time in, in Colombia, And ironically, he spoke Spanish. I mean, really? What were the odds of that? Yeah. You know, again, back to the perfect team, just coming together, I don't know how that yeah. happens. He,
3: he developed a very safe and an effective plan. The, the missions were basic. Yeah, uh, You know, we'll call it tactical BSA, we fact. Um, their Su 25s lasted a week and then they, they broke and then we did KT-1s, which are the newer Korean small attack aircraft. Very positive interaction with them. And, and you know, when it came to mission, and we did farping. You know, that was where we'd go up to that, that northern base, and we'd get the C-130 come from Lima, load the load the armaments from Moody, the Moody team. They were they were awesome. And then take the armors and the gas up to that base, and we'd farf. Chiclayo, yeah. go from Chiclayo to Cicleo. Talara. So basically, it was Lima South, Chiclayo Middle, and Talara North, and and you know, turning and operating out of Talara. I, I actually, you know, to try to put this in perspective, when we were in Ecuador, and it was just a, kind of a long jungle, jungle tri- triangle. But when we stretched out for Peru, because Lima and Chiclayo was 250 miles, and then I think Talara was like another 170 miles. So these were some stretched. We were stretched out. And I, I, I took those distances and took it over to China. And Lima is kind of like Manila. Manila Manila, Manila, and Clark Air Force Base. So, you know, we go and we do our mob at our main operating base at Clark Air Force Base. There's a small international airport that looks just like Chikleo on the northern Pida part of that Philippine island. I don't know what the name of the island is. And then the distance into the South China Sea from Chicleo to Tolar's, the same as this uh, island called Sparta or something like that. And there's a, a, a jungle airstrip there. You know, we could get in there. A C-130 could get in there and we could turn out of there. So we, we kind of showed the stretch that we could do with A-10s only because that airfield on that island is so bad. And, you know, we could run anti-vote with rockets. We could run, you know, some type of CSAR mission out of there, you know, with guys that maybe got shot down in, in the ocean. Uh, But we could affect any type of Taiwan engagement uh, with this model right here. And, uh, you know, these bases get whaled, okay, then we can go out of Japan and kind of stretch from Japan to the southeast, kind of do the same things and, you know, fly over Taiwan to affect the fight. So, you know, that's kind of what I saw as something that I didn't perceive initially uh, how this small wing could move. And, you know, move people, move uh, equipment and, and affect the fight like that. that is pretty, pretty neat to see that. But, 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 you know, our objectives were a partnership and I'll tell you what, uh, great friends down there, you know, the partnership was, was phenomenal. They loved us. They had a family day and they, they, we were the, you know, we were the heroes of the family day. That's why the culture is so similar to us. And you know, I remember that when, when we said that this is the first time A-10s have been south of the equator they immediately sent five generals up to, to the base from Lima. And no kidding, the day prior they had a band practice and it was, it was like the biggest ceremony. And you had to, there was a line of saluting when, when they came off and you had to look them in the eye. You were directed to look them in the eye when you saluted them. And it went from the super formal arrival to when I'm giving a tour of the A-10 being translated by one of the guys there, his name was Fidel Castro. No kidding, a colonel in the in the Air Force who went to Montgomery. He went to Air War College. Oh, he did in the United States. Yeah, so he's a big Chiefs fan and stuff like that. It's kind of funny. But anyways, he these generals who some of them were army generals and some of them were fighter pilots went to you know it's like the super formal look in the eye. They're giving me hugs and you know I'm sitting on the rail with the the their chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff equivalent and he's just talking to me about being a, an Army officer, and, you know, uh, he loves the air, the Su the, the 25s because they protect his men, and it went from this super formal ceremony to this partnership that was personal, and then you, you didn't get to go to that, Keith, but that went, it went to the same when we had our VIP day.
1: Is that day. when Radliff was down there?
3: Yep, when General Radliff came down there, it went from, you know, this super formal, stood at attention for an hour, no kidding, and then marched, Kind of, I just said, follow me. And we walked out to the, <laughs> to the big photo, which is that 20 minutes, that photo. You didn't go. You missed I, it. I did not go. Yeah. Back. Keith was working, working problems or had dengue fever, one or the other. Uh, <laughs> it's both. <laughs> yes. I know you're working problems. Went from the super formal, the ambassador was there. They were showing their military, their de- secretary of defense, our airplanes and stuff like that. So we ended up being in the fighter bar with a bunch of fighter pilots. And you know, it just went from this formal to this informal. And you know, we were having toasts and that's where I got that Su-22 patch. Yes, Su-20, no, I think it was a Su-22. But just partnership was easy. And then can an AFRIC leadership team plan and do that? And it was was a challenge. I I shortchanged you because I was your vice and I was doing this probably at the end, 75% of the time. You know, if it wasn't a wing emergency, I was probably doing Patriot Fury. And you know, obviously, these guys. You know, we had zero. He's a he's a group commander, yeah. full time commander. Keith was the IG and the LRS commander, and he was doing this, taken away from some of our normal jobs. It was a challenge. And I'm I'm, I'm just talking about our team. There's there's other guys that had the same draw. We 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 didn't get resourced properly.
1: Yeah, that that's kind of what I. Brief in um, general, Healy, in your absence at the end, when a, we can't just keep pulling from, from wings like this to plan these no. kind of trips. And, vign- and there's, you
3: know, like there, there's people that are twiddling their thumbs working from home right now yeah. that could have helped. And we're experts. And then the other two things were ACE and, you know, just talking about the stories with the fuel, no, no contracts, using we, we were doing ACE beyond just that FARP plan that was planned at every, every turn. And then we had some medical ace stuff too, and that maybe was not at the level. But you know, when it came to aviation operations in Ace Africa should be proud. And then I'll tell you what, we we did an AEW, all Africa, uh, never been done before. Yeah, and it wasn't a Tdy to to Thunder or a Tdy to Nellis. This was a Tdy to our. We'll call it a very austere country yeah. in a lot of ways, and, and, and under resourced all the way. We we probably did did no one in the Air Force has ever done
1: this. Bob, from a PA perspective, did the Peruvian television, did they cover that down there? Did they have TV people? And and how did they cover it?
0: We did get some coverage. We got a lot of attention right when I first got there. Uh, I had taken some photos and released them and posted them to our Facebook. And uh, apparently the commander of the base at Chiclayo called his security lieutenant in and just chewed her out like where are these photos coming from do we have some kind of leak on this base and so so i was real quick told to stand down
1: colonel schultz was down there
0: (laughs) (laughs) angry (laughs) Uh, so uh, i i stood down for a day while uh, that was resolved and they were assured that yes these were officially released photos we had gone through all the proper practices and everything was good to go and after that. They were just wonderful. The local PA guys took me in. Uh, they were walking around with me. There was a, what was it Their 82nd anniversary celebration for the Peruvian Air Force. And one of their guys just grabbed me. He was like, come along, take pictures with me, get up here where you know, we can get better shots. It was fantastic. And we got some traction on local Facebook pages, a little bit of local media action. Nobody came out to the base that was media like they did in Greece. There was a lot of local media and a lot of tail spotters who wanted to come out for that. But I didn't see any of that in Peru. I was a little bit surprised, uh, especially with the A-10s the first time being south of the equator. Uh, yeah, you also. You I, I all thought s- we would end up with more uh, like news media type folks. Yeah, I,
3: th- I think they're I think they're concerned more about general living. You know, they're not, They're you know, they. The, the, at least where we were in Chiclayo, Lima, you know, is an international airport, so an airplane's, you know, not going to draw a lot of attention. But our fighters, you know, when we were getting gas, but I I think they're more focused on, you know, they're obviously not very, it's poverty. And, you know, I, I kind of, if anything hit me was how, like, how much trash and how not to the same living conditions. And you talked about that when you came back from Honduras. Yes. Uh, that kind of hit me. Uh, so I don't think they're concerned about a couple airplanes on the ramp, you know. Last I want to talk about the lodging because I've never seen Keith so so spooked. So so when Twelfth Air Force went down there, they somehow created a contract with a handshake that we're all gonna check in on the 24th of June and leave on the what? 25th
4: like, of July? Yeah.
3: And no one was there on the 24th of June. So they they charged all of our guys full full. I mean, even if you showed up on the 8th of July, you checked in on the 24th of June and Keith tried to get that resolved over and over to the point that he thought he was going to get arrested and i remember, <laughs> i'm not joking i've never seen so keith that. kind of like hold his hold his hold his like get shuddered when this police officer walked into the hotel and, uh, <laughs> it wasn't quite that way yeah.
5: but they were wanting to also charge people that didn't show so yeah. the people that didn't some of us did not get our visa passports done and we had to go without so even their rooms and that was the part i believe where uh, we had a the general manager and I had a conversation and it, it was a little spooky, I'll just leave it at that. A little but, heated? Uh, yeah. yeah it, it, but, uh, fortunately I got uh, the AFRC's uh, lead FM uh, planner on, on uh, the line th- that night, uh, he, he worked some issues out and uh, came up with a plan and the hotel was, was acceptable to that, so it kind of defused yeah. that situation. Do you think
1: that's why a bunch of you guys got roofied then? Yeah, I don't know <laughs> about the roofied part,
5: but yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it did get real for
3: a few minutes. I, I, I called this a, a tweener. You know, it wasn't a combat deployment, but the conditions were more like combat than a standard sure. T.U.I. And, yeah, we, got, we, we had a guy get mugged and rolled down in Lima, a uh, lieutenant colonel, orthopedic surgeon. And he woke up in a ditch with, with no phone and no, you know, he's lucky. But he
1: was it. out by himself late night. He right? made a mistake. Yeah. He made
3: a, a, a mistake. But we had pilots from DM get drugged, and they were with one of our pilots, Jekyll. Yeah. You know, these guys were lieutenant colonels, former squad commanders. They weren't drinking too much. They, they're they also airline pilots, so that they're used to traveling international, and they were targeted. So it's it's not a vanilla Ao, that's for sure. Yeah, you um, have
5: to keep your keep your eyes open. That yeah, we
3: true. had we had great security measures at Chiclayo Cic- where not to go, and and I think everybody complied with those. Lima was a little less controlled because it's a you know a huge international destination.
1: And Bob, you did both Greece and this just like Sal did. You did both Europe and, and this.
0: I did. Yeah, that was it. Was a busy spring and summer <laughs> But it it was a great experience, very worthwhile. The crash course in Spanish was lovely. Uh, (laughs) I know probably twice as much Spanish as I did when I got there, at least By the end, I could order a
1: hamburger without Google Translate, so that's something. That's funny. I'll tell you guys this. Just from my perspective, a year, year and a half of planning from the three of you, I would tell you, Sal, that you're in the MSG SEL position probably because of the work you did on this trip and the work you did in Greece. Keith, you're probably in the MSG job because of the work you did, not only because of the work you did with this. but what you did in Panama, what you did on this trip and what you've shown outside of the wing that you can do and leading people and solving problems. And I would say Rio to take this challenge on and General Radliff watched you work. It's a big, not only the only reason, but it's probably a big reason you're taking over for me here in two weeks because of the job that you did as an Air Force Reserve leader to show that you can take and just not quit. You had chances to cancel, cancel, cancel. And you kept driving. And I think it's a big reason why you're getting the the opportunity to lead the 442nd Fighter yeah, away Next,
3: I, I, I appreciate that. And you know what? It's making decisions without asking your boss is, is as long as you're not criminal or or completely stupid decisions. That, that's what you got to do. You know, we can't. You, you talk about that. We can't make every decision for people down there. Do it on your. You know, make make decisions on your own. Make decisions on your own. They're, they're probably going to be plus or minus twenty five. Percent good to go, and you'll readjust if necessary. So that that's that's I think that's what General Radliff liked.
1: Yeah, and I don't I making decisions. I don't think that I had nothing to do with the you. I don't think you ran anything by me on this trip for a year. Yeah, yeah. Very. You keep me up to date. This is going on. This is going on. But I just you got it, and because I, I trust you, and that's that's the way that I think if you're General, leading people, uh, that that's the way you should lead I think people. General Radliff
3: got that same vibe because I tell him this is what we're doing, and he's like, okay, you know. Yeah. I, mean, I couldn't run everything by him. You know, it would, it would be, it changed every day.
1: <laughs>
3: Any parting shots? Sal, you, you got to throw out, you know, so exit surveys were all positive. Everybody came out of there with a smile. It wasn't the best place to go, but everybody was fired up. Mission and, you know, lead, you know the, whole, the whole thing was, was a positive.
5: I think Just to back up what you were just saying, as far as all of us, we all grew because of this experience, and it wasn't just the people at this table. Everybody in play grew from that experience, and they would, I guarantee if they were here right now, they would tell you the same thing. Everybody
1: grew from this. And, and if, if the bell went off and they asked us to go set up a base in uh, the middle of Jordan or uh, Endo or UCOM, and, and we said, boom, you guys are going, the stuff that you learned on this trip would... It'll totally. help that trip tremendously, right? Tremendously. That's why we do this stuff. Tremendously. Cool. Bob, thanks for having us on the podcast. It went a little long. It might be the longest we've had, but <laughs> to, to recap it, literally a trip, they spent a year and a half planning and with all the stuff, we didn't get into a lot of the other stuff that, that we could have, but what a good recap. I really wanted to sit down with these guys and say thank you and thanks for setting this up. And Until next time, we'll, we'll, we'll be on with General Sabrick and Coach Chief Bluto on the next one. All right,
0: Sounds thanks. Good. Thanks for listening.